sir, why do you make 10 times more than I do? <laughs> I love it. That's great. And he said, because I'm, <laughs> because I'm in the corner office, you need, to, <laughs> you need to go find yourself a corner office. So when she gave me this opportunity, I went to him and, and, and asked him about it. And he said, go for it. And I want to be your first client. Wow. So KPMG was our first client. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that. And then we devise a three-year plan potential for our second meeting. Then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Thank you for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest today is Linda Rabbit. Linda is the founder and CEO of Rand Construction, an office interiors general contractor headquartered here in Washington, DC, who built and still builds innovative office finishes for many tenants throughout the Washington region and in four other cities around the country. Linda is a pioneer in so many disciplines that she has perhaps set the bar for others in entrepreneurship, women-owned company leadership, and resilience in the face of significant adversity. Linda cites many poignant moments in her life and career that would be momentous for any person, and only her true grit got her through them. She survived a marriage to a husband who physically abused her, business partners that left her, breast cancer that almost killed her, yet she survives and thrives in her business, personal, and community life due to her dogged determination and resilience. Her story earned her the Horatio Alger Award for overcoming adversity to become philanthropically successful in life. Once again, the conversation is followed by a postscript with my colleague, Colin Madden, 
who offers his perspective on the conversation. So please enjoy this wide-ranging and inspiring conversation with Linda Rabbit. So Linda, welcome to the Icons of DC Area Real Estate Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you, John, for having me. I'm not actually sure that I'm an icon, but I'm honored to be talking with you. You most certainly are, according to everyone I've spoken to. So, Linda, what is your current role at RAND Construction? So, my title is Founder and Chairman of the Board. We have an internal board of directors, and I am uh, helping my company in their succession planning so that we can be a multi-generational company. So when you say multi-generational, is that in, within your family or within other people's families? <laughs> no, that's within my, with my partners. Okay. So I have, you know, I have watched and studied what works and what doesn't work. And are the biggest firms in Washington that have been successful have been Clark and Hitt and Davis, and they're all multi-generational. So I said, this is what I want for my company. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, are you the kind of the, the big picture thinker for the company as far as direction and strategic direction as well and, and over the over horizon planning? Yes, I'm the strategist. Well, I lead the strategy sessions, but everyone has a voice in that. Mm-hmm. So let's turn back the time, the clock a bit, talk about a little bit about your origins and youth and parental influences. I understand you were born and raised in suburban Detroit, Michigan. I was. Like I was. And I guess you were born in Gross Point Woods. Were you born at uh, the hospital on at the corner of Mac and Moross? <laughs> Which I can't say John's. Was it St. John's hospital? No. No? Beaumont. Okay. I think. Beaumont. Okay. Great. So you grew up there and then you moved to Bloomfield Hills when you were a little... When you were... Seventh grade. Moved Good. to Bloomfield. Yeah. So talk about your childhood. So my childhood was interesting in, in a number of ways. My father came to this country in 1925. He was the smartest young man in his, in his family, and they wanted him to be very well educated. And they sent him to Michigan to a sponsor, a distant relative. And he, he was supposed to go to the University of Michigan Medical School and become a doctor. And his sponsor, his benefactor, said to him, you know, Carl, there's this new industry that's come up in in this country, and you need to, anyone can be a doctor who's smart, but you need to be an automotive engineer. There's this new automotive industry, and you need to be on the cutting edge of that. Mm -hmm. So he, he became an automotive engineer. And ended up with 19 patents in automotive wow. engineering. <laughs> Worked for Chrysler Briggs and then Chrysler Corporation all, all his productive life. So he was first generation. My mother was second generation Italian. And we would go to Little Italy, Detroit. And my grandmother would, you know, my father was aristocratic and spoke five languages. Really? And, you know, we could would quote Shakespeare, and my mother's family was very poor Italian family. They had 10 children. We would, when we'd go there, she'd go to the back. My grandmother would go in the back and get a chicken and, you know, break its neck and put it upside down, and three hours later, we'd have chicken soup. So, so how did they meet? 
they met at they met at Briggs. She was a secretary, and he was a boss. And she wasn't his secretary, but they met at at Briggs at the time, which was a precursor to Chrysler. And they were 19 years apart in age, wow. but they fell in love. And my grandmother at first was very skeptical of having a German and an Italian family. And at the end of his life, she was his favorite. He was her favorite. So it was very interesting. I got to see such a wide spectrum of, of life, which, as it turns out, helped me a lot in construction. That's interesting. So my, my father was studied and strict, and he wasn't just German. He was actually Prussian. So that might give you an idea of the discipline of it all. You probably inherited a bit of that. Yes, and my mother was the networker. She was the w- one who, you know, she had her sewing club and her bridge club and her, you know, her neighborhood things. So she, she really taught me the value of friendship. And he really taught me the value of diligence. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a, when we would go to church on Sunday, people would say to me, gee, I saw you with your grandfather. And that wasn't really my grandfather. It was my father. But he was so much older that they assumed that I was with my grandfather. So there were some downsides. It was right after the war. And, you know, he had a very, very strict German accent so and that was that was difficult sometimes there were still people who harbored lots of I can imagine lots of ill feelings about about Germany Yeah I imagine he had to defend off that thought process but I'm sure his intelligence by that time he'd been in the country for 20 plus years right, right. so Yeah so by that people knew that knew him that cared about him knew that he was you know solid Right right that's good so school, where did you where did you go to high school? Went to Bloomfield Hills High School, oh, really? EHHS. I think it's it changed its name to Losser. No, that's a, that's the second one. That's another one, right? So Bloomfield got to be so big. In my graduating class, there were five hundred people, mm-hmm. and it got to be so large that they several years later built Losser. My sister actually graduated from Losser. Okay, and then on to Ann Arbor, right? On to the University of Michigan, yes. Right. My father said in his best German accent, you will go to the <laughs> University of Michigan. I never, unlike my daughters, I never visited a college campus. I never, the first day that I was in Ann Arbor was my day of orientation. That was it. And the only time I ever called my father at work was to tell him I had gotten in on early admissions. So that was quite a point of pride for him. Mm -hmm. So what did you study in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Well, my mother's mother's vision for me, my mother only uh, went to high school. And here she was, you know, having lived in now Gross Point in Bloomfield Hills and had moved up several rungs on the social ladder. Her vision for me was to be the first one in either family to get a college education, to be a school teacher, and then to, you know, marry a very successful man, have a near perfect family and live a good suburban life. That's what she put in my head, that I was, you know, that, that would be a very nice career for me to be mm-hmm. a school teacher. 
But that was not unusual in in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. You were, as a woman, you were generally asked to, to think about teaching or nursing. So you were there before the revolutionary times in Ann Arbor then? Oh, no. You were there? Then? Oh, yeah, 66 to 70. Oh, I guess you were. Yeah. I graduated from Bloomfield High in 66. So you saw Tom Hayden take over South University. Absolutely. The Weathermen, the SDS. I saw all of it. What was your reaction to that at the time? You know, John, I I was so focused on achievement because that's how I got my father's love, you know, was to accomplish something that... Um, he must have been appalled at what was going on there, I'm guessing. He actually didn't talk too much about that. Really? But what he talked about was how I should comport myself, what my character should be. And it was study, study, study. I never did drugs. There were drugs all around me. I, I, I didn't do drugs. I must admit I had a beer occasionally, but I joined a sorority, was the social secretary, as one would imagine, of my sorority, and lived a pretty sweet isn't the right word, but you sure. understand what I mean. A, a simpler, not agitated life. But I'm guessing from the time you were a freshman, the time you were a senior, you saw dramatic changes in temperament, in behavior, in dress, and everything on campus, I, I'm guessing, because in 66, it wasn't quite that way. Well, when people in the later years, when people would come back from Vietnam, they would tell these stories that I absolutely could not relate to. I just, I I couldn't even imagine that experience. And after several of our high school friends died in the war, it became, you know, it became really emotional in, in ways that we couldn't understand. Right. Without getting into politics, there was so much swirling around at that time politically, just like there is now. There was so much social unrest. When I look back at the documentaries that are done in the 60s, about the 60s, -hmm. I think, wow, how did we ever make it? How did there were cities burning? And Detroit was one of them. Detroit was one of them. And it was it was a very unsettling time. But when you're young, you don't know any different. You just that's the experience you were having. And I was quite outside of the box of anger and hostility. I was quite inside the box, though, of making a difference. That's the part of that era that I, that I, that I took away. The lesson I took away the most was that it is important to make a difference and to, and to push for making things better. So did your experience then have a lasting effect or did you kind of just kind of avoid the problems and just stay focused, but noticed and then picked up on what you just said with regard to wanting to make a difference? I would say that I logged it in for sure. It became part of my experience to make a difference. The way I uh, behaved was to get this disease to please and when you combine wanting to make a difference with the disease to please, you know, you get to be very busy in life. <laughs> so then you uh, went into education. Is that right? I did. Well, actually, I moved to Washington. There was a, a boyfriend involved okay. and I couldn't get a job as a teacher. There was a recession going on. Yeah. I, no, I moved to Washington. Right away. Right away. 
three months out of college. I actually knew that the Midwest was probably not for me, that my high school and college friends say they always knew I was ambitious. I didn't know that at the time, but if you were to interview my high school and college friends, they would say, oh, Linda, you were always going to achieve something. You were always ambitious. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that about me. So when I didn't get a teaching job, I went to Georgetown, uh, George Washington University and got a uh, master's degree in education. So that was within the first year you were in Washington when right, you started that. Right, okay. I eventually got a teaching job, and my I taught at Luther Jackson Intermediate at Gallows Road and Route 50 in Fairfax. Sure. And I taught in a World War II Quonset hut. Oh, my goodness. It was the, the that area was growing and expanding, and the school couldn't accommodate all the kids. Sure. So I taught in a Quonset hut for three years. Mm-hmm. Was it under construction or just? No. No. Interesting. Was, just expanding. And so I am still friends with the people, with a, a number of the people that I taught school with. Wow. So three years doing that, and uh, then you met your husband at the time, right? Did you know him at that point, or were you married uh, at that point? Well, no, I met my husband as while I was a teacher, Dr. Rabbit, and we married, I'm trying to think of the date, we married in 75, 1975. Mm-hmm. I had my first daughter in 76 and my second daughter in 77. And by 1980, we were divorced. Mm-hmm. So I, if you think about it psychologically... I probably took too many psychology classes in my <laughs> at the University of Michigan. I, yes. I, I majored in social studies, so I had a lot of psychology classes. Sure. If you think about it, my father came to this country to be a doctor, and I ended up marrying a doctor. So that was probably in my brain somewhere an attractive. And things didn't go so well. Things really didn't go so well, yes. He was... Charming and brilliant and what was called then manic depressive, which in those years, science didn't know much about, but he was a doctor, so he could uh, self-medicate. And it was a condition that got worse over time. So his first wife, who I to this day am best friends with, said that he was only verbally abusive with her, but as his disease progressed, he became, he was verbally abusive and then became physically abusive. Mm. So I was a battered wife at the end and left my 9,000 foot home in in, uh, McLean overlooking the Potomac River Mm. with my two little girls, age three and two, and started my life over at 32. So your girls were too young to really understand what was going on. Correct. Yeah, that's good some ways. Then what? Then what, what did you, you want to go back into teaching or did you? What, what did well, you I had lost my teaching certificate and, you know, I didn't get recertified because right, right, right. I was going to be a sure. suburban housewife. And the, uh, my oldest daughter at the time was in nursery school at the Langley School in McLean. And one of the parents offered to help me get a job. And so my first job was as a secretary at KPMG for $16,000 a year. 
And I was forever grateful to him. I had been selling antiques and furniture out of the house in order to buy groceries for my family. And to to actually be making a living was, was really very helpful and very needed. So you had no alimony or anything like that? No, he actually left the country and uh, moved offshore with all his our money and with his 21-year-old nurse. Oh. So that was, that was not, you know, those were very, very sad times for me. I lived with a girlfriend until I could get enough money to rent an apartment. Mm. And the Langley School helped me with tuition so that my children would be in a safe place. I am forever grateful to the people who showed such compassion for what I was going through. Were your parents still around at that point? Did you talk to them? My father died the same year. So at the last conversation I had with my father was that I was at the nadar of my life, but that I promised him that I would I would overcome my my huge mistake and I would eventually make him proud. Wow. Well, did he give you any advice or what did he say to you? Did he give you some inspiration or no, actually the only thing he said to me was please take care of your mother. She's ill-equipped to, you know, handle all of this. So here I was with no money being asked to take care of my mother and my children with, but he meant it in a loving, I mean, for him, that was loving. You know, he knew that you had the strength to do it then in essence. For him to say that meant something. It had to mean something. Well, what he was really saying to me is you're now the head of the family and you have these responsibilities, this stewardship, this obligation to. But he knew you well enough to know that you had the courage and the guts to do it. Right. He did. And that, that fueled my desire to, again, if you were to talk to my my friends in that era, they would say that I spent the rest of my life proving to my father that that he was that that you know I had learned my lessons well from him and that I made him proud. That's great. And honestly, John, everyone I know who's successful has a story. It's not the same story, oh. but it's something that fuels them to achieve things that they had no idea they could possibly achieve. And that was me because I had no idea. I was, I, I had such that disease to please, you know, really hurt me. I kept, I just kept trying to please somebody who was really very sick and I eventually couldn't. Mm-hmm. So the, the good news out of all of that is I called his first wife and said, I am in so much pain. Will you please, I'd like to introduce my children to you. And she had three children. And we went to Annapolis and we met that afternoon. And she's a ve- she, she was so comforting to me. And we've been best friends ever since. And our children are best friends. Isn't that something? So something really good came out of something really bad. Wow. I mean, that's pretty unique to go to. Right. 
Well, that was that was creative thinking on my part. I had to find a way for my daughters not to think they were the only ones who had been abandoned. Well, who else would understand what happened than her? Right. That's interesting. Wow. But she was gracious enough to accept me. Yes. Yes. So you went to KPMG. And so you were there for how many years? How long were you? Five years. Five years. So what did you learn there that kind of got you motivated? So on my very first day, I had never taken a bus in my life. And I took a taxi from McLean to K Street, to 1990 K Street, but on the way home. So I got to work that first day, and there was a woman sitting next to me, and she said, you have two degree, you have two fancy degrees, and if you think I'm going to help you do this job, you're terribly wrong. Then that afternoon, I had to take a bus home because I didn't have money to do a cab both ways. Sure. And... It was February 2nd, 1981. You remember the day. Absolutely. Because it it was the day that changed my life. It was snowing, and I'd never ridden a bus before, and I thought that the bus would say Tyson's or McLean or something. Mm -hmm. Whatever I thought, it didn't say that. So these buses kept going by, and I started crying, and it was snowing, and it was cold, and I was hungry, And I said, okay, universe, I got to make a deal with you here. I promise you that if you get me out of this situation, I will spend the rest of my life making sure that other people don't have to go through this. So that was my deal with the universe. That's an absolute 100% true story. Three years later, that secretary was fired for good cause. Not that it had anything to do with me, but... It taught me that, you know, being unkind wasn't really the right way to do things at work. Mm-hmm. Nine months later, I was asked to be the managing partner's assistant. And he said, do you take dictation? And I said, no, sir, but I have a degree in English. So if you just tell me what you want written, I'll just write the letter for you. And he said, OK, you're hired. But I didn't, you know, I could type. I had no secretarial skills other than that. And I was Mm -hmm. social enough. So, you know, I'd grown up and I understood how to answer the phone properly and make reservations. Three months after that, I was his executive assistant. So I went to all the executive committee meetings and took notes. He announced at an executive committee meeting three months into my tenure as his secretary that the firm, the top third of all the largest uh, cities in the U.S., were going, they were going to have a new position called Director of Practice Development. And he announced that he is, was naming me the Director of Practice Development, which is really a marketing job. Now, he had taken me out to lunch before and said that he wanted to promote me and said that his, the woman who was helping them with marketing, who was an outside consultant, suggested that and said, look, Mr. Harlan, your secretary is very ambitious. She will, she will leave after a year because she's very ambitious. But if you put her in this new position, she'll stay five years. He went home and told that to his daughter. And his daughter said, Dad, if you don't do that, I'll really think less of you. 
However, the partners at KPMG really didn't understand that. There was silence. You could have heard a pin drop at that meeting. That was very eye-opening for me. So I learned so much. I've never had a business class. I've never had an accounting class. I learned everything I needed to know about business by being there for five years. Why were the partners, why were the partners concerned? What, what were their concerns? I was a secretary to them. I, okay. I, I made the coffee. I took the notes. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be in charge of something. I was going to be out marketing on their behalf. I didn't know accounting. So they could not imagine that that would be successful. Interesting. And your boss still believed in you. And why did he believe? He just had a talent for seeing for seeing talent. The guy who sat down the hall from me, who became one of my best friends in life, John V. Meyer, he saw his talent, and John V. Meyer ended up being the global chair of KPMG. Wow. So, and John and I laugh about that. You know, we were always the first ones in and the last ones to leave. And Steve Harlan just took a liking to us and saw something in us that he backed. So he really actually changed, again, changed the trajectory of my life by giving me a chance. And I said to him, sir, I know nothing about marketing. And he said, well, you didn't really know much about secretarial work, so go learn. He just believed in you. He did. That's great. That's great. So then you bumped into or somehow met Sherry Turner, your future business partner. So well, how as- did that happen? At the time, I called him Mr. Harlan, as one did in those days, asked me to get involved with the Greater Washington Board of Trade. So I got on the the, uh, membership committee of the Greater Washington Board of Trade, and that's where I met Sherry Turner. She was doing marketing for an architectural firm, and I was doing marketing for an accounting firm. Sure. And she said she wanted to start the first woman-owned construction company in Washington. And she was looking for a partner. So what? why would somebody in marketing for architecture want to start a construction company? So that's an interesting career choice. Quite honestly, she had been married to a Turner of Turner Construction. Ah, okay. And divorced. <laughs> and okay. so, you know, she had her own something to prove. So there was a burning feeling in her. Correct. I remember saying to Mr. Harlan one time in a teasing way, sir, are you like 10 times smarter than I am? And he said, no, Linda, you're really smart. Well, are you 10 times more clever than I am? No, Linda, you're really clever. Are you 10 times more creative than I am? No, Linda, you're really creative. Sir, why do you make 10 times more than I do? (laughs) I love it. That's great. And he said, because I'm, <laughs> because I'm in the corner office, you need, to, <laughs> you need to go find yourself a corner office. So when she gave me this opportunity, I went to him and, and, and asked him about it. And he said, go for it. And I want to be your first client. Wow. So KPMG was our first client. Now, that company at the time, because... You know, we were written up in Washingtonian magazines. We were two young blondes, you know, sort of nice looking and doing something really unique. So we got a lot of press. But actually, John, 
in the three and a half years or four years we were together, we were only a $3 million company at our peak. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was not a large company. It's just that we were unique, so we got attention. Sure. So did, how, how, how many people did you hire in that three-year period that you... Uh, I think we together? had about 10 people. 10? Yeah. And it was only interiors? Is that all you did? It was only interiors, yes. Mm-hmm. So the scope of business was just limited then, basically, with the, with the amount of personnel. And did, did you? What was your role then in that, in that company? To start uh, up? So she knew everyone. She knew a lot of people in real estate. Sure. And because of my position, I knew a lot of decision makers. Ah. So uh, I I had what we used to call a rolodex. Of course. Of of, of contacts of people who who truly wanted to help me. Mm-hmm. And they did. They helped. They helped me get work, and we hired people who knew construction because we got work, and it was all good until it was all bad. <laughs> <laughs> until she fired me. Mm. So I learned my first business lesson about not owning a forty-nine percent of a business. But I am forever grateful that. I went into construction to make a living, but I actually ended up making a life. And so I'm forever grateful. Again, out of something bad came something really, really good. I I got to learn an industry and a group of people. You've been studying this group of people. They're amazing. Our real estate industry in Washington has amazing people at, at the top of their games and I got to have a front row seat in that. So that was, that was pretty interesting. I got to learn a lot from masters. So what really turned you on about the construction industry? Why, so let's just say you're three years in and you got let go or you, you had a disagreement. and You said, well, I've learned a lot. Maybe I should go into another or do something else. Why did you go back and start? You just felt like you had momentum and you wanted to keep going I with it? I actually ended up loving it. And it goes back to my mom and my dad, these blue-collar workers who get up at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning to go downtown to, to do their trades, reminded me of my mother's family. And the, the office people were all well-educated. And part of owning a construction company is taking – blue-collar tradesmen and making them a team with white-collar office people. Okay, now I see it. And it was, to me, it was so natural. It wasn't hard for me to understand that. It it. was just natural. I could sit on the floor with a carpenter and figure something out, and then I could go be with the managing partner of a law firm two hours later and never... See that there was, you know, and, and never feel yeah. uncomfortable yeah. either place. So you bridged two societies together, in essence, to some extent. Correct. All construction companies do that, not just me. Right. We all do that. Right. So you have to communicate with the workers, and then you have to negotiate with the, with the buyers and the, Correct. the clients. You have to be able to connect with a wide range of interests People, personalities, cultures. Yeah, and you've seen the industry change over the years too, I assume, with regard to a cultural change. 
it seems like, as far as the workers. Well, the truth of the matter is I never had a hard time hiring superintendents. They thought, they thought, and I did, take better care of them than my counterparts did. So, you know, they would call me Mother Rabbit, like I took care of them. And, and they appreciated that. And we have superintendents who have been here for years and years and years and wouldn't leave because I took care of them when they needed to be taken care of. I gave them interest-free loans when they needed loans. I helped them in all sorts of ways because I understood that they were where the rubber and the road meet. That if we weren't excellent in producing construction, we would be out of business. I I couldn't market my way into that. Sure. So they, for me, it was exciting to take an empty space and have it be a beautiful experience six or eight or 10 or 12 weeks later. That was, you know, that was interesting to me. So I ended up absolutely loving what I did. So talk about the, uh, the, the initiation and evolution of RAND construction. How did it start? How did that all happen? A friend of mine in the industry introduced me to a young man named Mark Anderson, who was the head of interiors for Davis Construction. Mm-hmm. And he was looking to grow his entrepreneurial wings. And so we, Rabbit and Anderson became RAND Construction. And... You had had, obviously, experience there. Did Mark bring that kind of experience to the table, or was he? Well, Mark had never started a firm, so I I taught him some of that. But he also knew construction. Honestly, he has a degree, I think, in physics. So it wasn't like he was an engineer himself, but sure. a brilliant young man mm-hmm. and, and loved construction as much as I did. Mm-hmm. So we, we were a good team. So was that, what time in the market was that? I mean, what, what year was that when you started? 1989. And about Ooh. six months later, Ooh. this Ooh. this community hit a real estate yes. depression. Yes. And we had the advantage of uh, having low overhead. We had the advantage of, of talented people being relieved of their duties of other companies so we could hire talent. And we had the advantage of relationships. So the, the old Oliver Carr company was our client. KPMG was a client. Law firms were our clients. We were, we were making a name for ourselves with name brand organizations, which gave us tremendous credibility. And that's what we needed was the credibility. So during those tough times, your clients, if they were tenants, I imagine that would be a better, because they weren't reliant on the real estate industry. The tenants had their own business, so they may not have been effect, as affected as the real estate companies. Was that True, but it was still a time when people were hoarding money and, and hoarding cash, and they weren't expanding. So it, we began, ran July 10th, 1989, and that stub year, that half year course, we didn't make money, but every year thereafter, we did and built a reputation for being experts in commercial interiors. In 1995, we were a $20 million company, and Mark decided that he wanted to use his, his exquisite brain 
to be a consultant and not have all this risk because our houses were on the line. Everything we owned was on the line. And because we were a new startup company, you know, bonding mm-hmm. companies wanted to protect themselves. Sure. So he went off to start a very successful consulting firm and I kept brand. So those years, how did you weather 1991 and 92? I mean, how did that, how did you make money during those? those very years? carefully, John. <laughs> well, we, we didn't have the overhead that our competitors right, had. Right. So we were a, we were a better choice financially because we could, we could do the work less expensively. And that was attractive to people. So you were doing, I imagine, mostly retrofit of existing space, or were you doing new build-outs? No, there was some new build-outs, build yeah. That's interesting. 1301K, Gardner, Carton, and Douglas. I remember it well. It's interesting. Uh, did you mostly do stuff downtown, or did you yes. in the suburbs, too? We mostly did stuff downtown. But not in Tyson's or out in the suburbs. Most too. of my contacts were really in the city. So that's interesting. An earlier podcast guest of mine, Vernon Narr, talked about so many, a lot of transactions that he was involved in at that time. And uh, the downtown market was just exploding from about 85 through probably about 91 or so. And then it it was a cliff. You know, for, for us... That we, so if you're doing commercial interiors, you're really at the end of the cycle because you're the last one in. So we're a lagging indicator, not a leading indicator. And as a lagging indicator, unfortunately, when it drops, it's a cliff. It, it's sudden and severe, as they say in medicine. It, one day you have, a, you have work and the next day you don't. So it... But we had the advantage in the early years of being small and nimble. And, and then in 1995, when Mark left, the work was picking up, but my competition was telling everyone that I was the marketing person and that we'd be out of business, so they shouldn't bid to me. I worked, in 1995, I worked seven days a week wow. for seven months. So you just kept the, the, the train on the tracks, in essence. You didn't try to do anything different at that point. You just, you know, or shrink, or you just kept kept going, pretty much. You didn't try to divert strategies. You know, just kept I just going. Just kept going. Just one foot in front of the mm-hmm. other. And you stayed in interiors. Did you think about other parts of the of the development or the the construction industry? Not then. I didn't. So even after the struggles of your younger years, after a routine physical examination, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. What gave you the determination to fight and overcome that challenge and keep your business going simultaneously? Well, by that time, you can imagine I had become pretty much an expert in survival. I had survived a number of of things. I actually was so angry because by 2000, we were, you know, Rand was really doing well. And I was angry that I had to have yet another hurdle to overcome. But I remember my husband saying to me, and he didn't say it in a biblical way. He said it in a, in a universal way. You know, you keep saying, Linda, out of every bad comes some good. There will be a blessing here somewhere. Just look for the blessing. 
And that sort of kept that kept me going because I had learned that from prior, you know, difficulties that there was always something really good that came out of something really bad. And after seven surgeries and mm. four rounds of chemotherapy, wow. I can assure you I needed something good to happen. Wow. Were your children good support during that time? Absolutely excellent. And so was my husband. He was absolutely, they were all just as supportive as they could be. And so were my girlfriends. They they took very good care of me. And how did the business run while that was this was all going on? So that the blessing ended up being a young man named John Couch, who, who was from Michigan. His mother was a doctor from the University of Michigan. He had moved to Washington and had gone to GW to school. So mm-hmm. he had gone to Ann Arbor and GW. Sure. We were like yeah. on the same wavelength, good Midwestern folk of course. from a good family. And he had been with us for a while, but he just took over. He just helped me. He saw an opportunity and he said, okay. I I remember walking in one day and saying, John, I'm really sick and I don't know how long this is going to be. So I am unceremoniously promoting you. Please help me get through this. And he did. He was unbelievable. And again, it was like Steve Harlan Seeing my talent, I saw his talent, and he helped me build the business. That's great. So how long had he been with the firm at the time that you? I think five that? years. Oh, so he, he knew the business well. Yes. It wasn't as if you were betting on him. You knew already that he was. I, I knew he's one of the few people I have worked with who every time I promoted him, he was better at the higher job than the lower job. That's interesting. So he he just had this headroom that was just so incredible. He was a better senior project manager than project manager. He was a better executive than he yeah. was a senior project manager. It's interesting. You see different strengths in people. Right. Sometimes people have a broader perspective than a narrow perspective. They're better at, at bigger picture than smaller picture sometimes, I think. It's interesting. So talk about the, the scale of your company now and how it you know, grew in essence. So you, from 95 on to today, how that's all all happened. So in 2009, we had another cliff. Okay. And that was a tough year. That was a tough year. And John decided that we couldn't grow with just one line of business, that we were either going to have to take on several lines of business or grow geographically. Ah. And it was really his idea. It wasn't mine, but I supported it and funded it. And we opened an office in Atlanta, and then we opened an office in Denver, and then we opened an office in Austin, and then we opened an office in Dallas. And Why those cities, out of curiosity? It was for all the wrong reasons, John. We, we did everything wrong uh, in our <laughs> geographic expansion, we, we, knew, we knew a group of people who were coming out of a brokerage firm who were co- contractors and they needed surety backing and we had surety backing. We never actually ha- bought a company, but we hired this group of people. We did the same thing in Denver and we didn't really know how to manage 
other than management by walking around. This was all new to us, you know, managing geographically. And we made a lot of mistakes. We made a lot of leadership mistakes. We made a lot of mistakes in not really understanding some of these businesses that they wanted to go into uh, mm. that we didn't know about. But uh, through that, we, lo- we learned how to do it the right way. And Austin really was the first time we took somebody from Washington, put them in Austin, put a group of people and had them be excellent at what they did there. The grand way. Right. And as it turns out, you know, we, I've been on um, a number of corporate boards and one of the corporate boards that I started out with was Watson Wyatt. And they had this philosophy that they were going to be the top three consulting firms or actuaries in every market they were in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sort of got adopted that philosophy philosophy over the years Mm -hmm. that, you know, if we were going to go into a city, our goal was to be the top three in our industry. Mm -hmm. We were going to stick to our knitting. We weren't going to do things that we didn't know how to do. I mean, to do what you don't know how to do in a city that you don't know is really not smart. (laughs) So, but we learned how to do it. And now we have five offices and terrific leadership in every office. And I'm very proud of that. So you had to mold those other offices into what you wanted. Yes. Well, eventually what we did was export Washington people to there and hire local talent, you know, people who knew the organization that knew the cities locally. Sure. And and we, we exported our culture and our values. So you would train fresh people into, into what you, the way you believe should be done. Correct. That's great. So you have, is it six offices now? Five. Five. Okay. And did that multiply your business or did it geometrically or arithmetically that growth to some extent? Well, arithmetically at first, but then geometrically. And there is a multiplier effect. And one of the things that actually was very helpful to us in this recent period, difficult period, was that we, we did know how to manage geographically. We did know how to communicate with each other. And we did know how to cross-sell each other. So our clients, many of our clients are in those cities. And we learned how to help each other secure the work in the other cities. That's great. So they brought business to you, in essence, in other cities. They'd say, well, we have something expanding in Dallas. Can you help us out there or something like that? Right. That's great. That's great. So you've been involved with some impressive projects in this region and beyond. Talk about some of your favorite jobs and why. Well, I have to say that every project we win and we do is my favorite project. You wouldn't expect me to say any less than that. (laughs) Your clients are listening. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I think the ones that were the watershed moments were the ones that that stick by me the most, that that I think about the most. Mm -hmm. The first time we won a a $10 million project, it was a law firm for Aiken Gump. And there were five bidders on it. And Nobody expected Rand to get that work. Was that on the Hampshire Avenue? Yes. Yes. Because, right. you know, Aiken Gump was Aiken Gump and a very powerful law sure. firm. And when we won that, it was such a watershed moment. 
I have been friends with every managing partner of Aiken Gump since then, and out of out of tremendous appreciation for what they did to help. Um, Is that your first law firm, big law firm? It wasn't the first law firm, but it was the first $10 million project we did. And it was 20 years ago. So it was a long time ago. We just recently relocated them. How many floors was that? It was three floors of a rolling renovation. So it took us several years. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it was, I think... One of the things we haven't yet discussed is that actually in 2014, when we were just really humming, that brilliant man, the president of my company, John Couch, passed away in a, in a plane crash. Wow. He was a very talented guy. He could do fly fishing and he, could, he was a pilot and he was a woodworker and he was a brilliant mechanic and he was piloting his own plane and and made a mistake and his plane crashed mm. so in 26 2014 i had to start over again and the the next project that we went after was for the washington post mm. and we won and this is just after john had passed away when again everyone was saying you know we're not you know, we're, we've been wounded by that. So those are the projects that I... That and Jeff Bezos bought the post at that no. point? This is before, so the Graham family still right. allowed it. Okay. Yes. Um, Catherine Weymouth was the pu- publisher, and and we nailed it. We just nailed it. We, mm-hmm. we did such a good job. And again, it was back to reputation. So the Post has a printing plant, too. So you only probably just did their offices, right? At 1301K. Okay. Where we did the first law firm. So So that building means something to you. Life was a circle. (laughs) (laughs) That particular building means a lot. Who who was the landlord of that building? Uh, They're probably different ones at each of those. At different times, they were different landlords. So then last year... We won the headquarters for the new headquarters for Marriott International Corporation, which was a hundred million dollar project. The, the one in downtown Bethesda. Yes, Aha. the largest project we will have ever done. And again, our competitors were most surprised and very angry that we took that that jewel of a project. Well, my guess is you've done, you had done considerable work for Boston Properties before that. And then you had a good relationship with, with Ray and his team. Well, we, we do have a wonderful relationship with Boston Properties and they are the premier, you know, among the premier developers in town. And um, we're very proud of that. We're very proud to have secured that work. It was really actually not through Boston Properties. It was through Marriott had the ability to make their own decision. Ah, okay. So, but, you know, it helps to have friends. Sure. And just before that, we had done an $85 million project for Trammell Crow. I've been working with Trammell Crow for 30-some years. Last year, we did um, the... Federal Communications Commission uh, for Trammell Crow, but $85 million, which teed us up to, you know, prove that we could do a $100 million project. So it's been, it's been so interesting to 
see how you can build upon your successes and how you have to learn from your the things you don't do well, the things you don't, you know, the, the missteps you've made, like our geographic expansion. So you mentioned the FCC. So have you done a lot of uh, GSA space? We have not. We have done a lot of GSA space for developers, not for the GSA directly. Our, our, our preferred model is to do it for developers. Uh, but private tenants, you work for. Oh, absolutely. So for not to work for the government. I, I don't, it's, it's just, we don't know that. We don't know that style of doing business. We haven't learned that yet. We will, and we're going to, but we, up until this point, the it's, SFO a, pursuits. it's, yes, it's a very, very different right. style of doing business right. than, than doing business with developers or ten or tenants. Cause they're, you know, they own, I don't know how many million square feet. <laughs> In Washington, the government does. Oh, yes. And they're going to have a lot of work coming up. So we're, we're discussing how we can, how we can expand our yeah. skills. I interviewed regard. Dan Matthews, who was the former head of GSA recently, and he said it was, there's just an awful lot of detail work and amount of build-out and work they have to do on their projects. And almost all their portfolio needs updating, just about. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, not thank goodness for the taxpayers, but thank goodness for the contractors. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So as with most businesses, especially yours, where people are relied upon for critical improvements that impact people's lives in many ways, how do you attract the best team and retain them? This is going to sound uh, simplistic, but my husband used to take me to, in, in the early days, I learned about selling or learned about business by going to these motivational speakers. And my favorite motivational speaker was Zig Ziglar. And He's classic. Classic. And he, Zig Ziglar would say, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's a great one. And I never forgot that. I never forgot how, how fundamentally simple that is and how absolutely relevant it is to everyday life. So my people knew that I cared. And I did a lot of things for them. Now, I had a lot to overcome because not in the field, as I said before, but in the office, because, you know, somebody coming out of Penn State with a a good degree in construction or coming out of Virginia Tech probably didn't want to work for a girl who had whose degrees were in English and American history. And so I had to prove myself to my employees in ways that that not everyone had to do. And that took time and it took effort, but John helped me with that. You know, my new partners are helping with that. And now, of course, nobody thinks of me any longer as an English and American history teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Although I have to say, I have my master's degree. My specialty was adolescent development and that has helped me on job sites once in a while. I can imagine. (laughs) I can imagine. So the construction business requires both a big picture understanding of a project and its components, along with the detailed understanding of how parts are assembled and interrelate, along with the diligence to get it right the first time. Talk about your philosophy and your company's mission. Well, our philosophy, our, our modus operandi is preparation. We actually build projects twice. We build them the first time in our heads and on paper, 
and the second time in the field. And when we do that, we're really successful. We, we have that big picture view and we can think around corners. And when we do that, we avoid pitfalls. You know, we've never actually been sued or been sued by a client. We're the only really? general contractor of our size in this area, at least, who can, who can say that. So you attribute that to planning? I attribute that to collaboration. I attribute it to a lot of things, actually. Relationships. I attribute it to letting go <laughs> sometimes. I attribute it to thinking that our reputation and the way we comport ourselves is really important. So you might lose money on a job, potentially. Yes. yes. I'd rather do that than lose my reputation. But re- remember, when I went, started this business, Sherry Turner told me that within three years, we'd be making $100,000 a year. And I couldn't even imagine making that kind of money as, you know, I couldn't imagine making that kind of money. So money was not the motivator for me. The motivator was to prove, uh, to prove excellence, to be excellent, to make a difference. Mm-hmm. That's, and I would hope also to serve your clients as best you can too, right? Well, that was that, big, that's the... The byproduct? <laughs> right. That's the... the what, how do I want to say it? That gets you to the happy place by by serving them and serving them well. Exactly. So the construction business is predominantly male. As a woman, what advantages do you think you have in dealing with general contractors, subcontractors, clients, brokers, and other industry professionals? Well, for years, I was the only woman in the room. So I did have the advantage of having people remember me better because I was the only woman in the room. I think that women, if you, I could make a generalization, at a certain point in everyone's career, they have high IQ. But for whatever reason, if they used to call it woman's intuition, women have a propensity to have maybe better EQ, to be able to read the room and to understand what's really going on. I think that that is an advantage that women have that they've only recently understood and and used effectively. But in the early years, my husband said to me, you know, Linda, if the boys ignore you and the girls ignore you, you've got nowhere to go. So I made it a point to have a network of female friends who we could teach each other how to do our jobs better. And that group has been getting together every four times a year for 25 years. So Wendy White talked about that in our podcast interview. It's called the Wind Down Group, correct? Correct. I think you were one of the founders, right? I was. A woman named Janet Davis and I founded it 25 years ago. And she started out as a client from Brandywine Prentice Properties at first and she became my best friend. And we said, you know, we've got, you know, we've got to have more women who really understand how business really happens, how it really happens, not how we think it happens, but how, how the parts and pieces come together, how people actually win work and, and get a reputation for being excellent and, and are successful. 
So, and we taught each other how to how to approach things. So crew existed at that time, right? Yes, and what we were we? all presidents of crew. Oh, okay. So that was a common bond. <laughs> yes. So this was sort of crew on steroids. <laughs> you know, I mean, no disrespect to crew, but it was uh, w- women who had uh, had taken leadership positions in crew, learned a lot about leadership through their their time at crew and who were going on to, to have even more larger responsibilities, bigger responsibilities. And there were so few of us, you know, when Wendy, there were only a few women who could do what Wendy did. There were only a few women in development like Janet Davis. There you were, were the only one in construction. I was the only one in construction. You know, there were only a few women who were actually at the top of architectural firms, not just, you know, mm-hmm. sure. architects. And and I'm very proud of that group. We've, we've, we've stuck together for a really long time. We've mm-hmm. helped each other a lot. So thinking about younger women, what would you encourage them to do? I mean, would you encourage them to form groups like that or get involved maybe, in, you know, ULI Washington has the, the Women's Leadership Initiative is... So every single corporation has some kind of diversity or women's women's training. They do now. Well, even before now, they they maybe talked about it. Now they're Mm -hmm. actually doing something about it. Mm -hmm. But you know, I've spoken at ENY, I've spoken at Deloitte, I've spoken at Booz Allen, you know, corporations. You didn't have to go to KPMG because they already knew, right? (laughs) But I have spoken to KPMG. And and particularly the service firms were very interested in how they could accommodate women, particularly through the childbearing years and the early years when women are distracted, distracted when when they have a choice of having a family or not. So diversity today is for the first time, is really being looked at actually seriously. People aren't just talking about it. They are demanding it. And when we go to interview for a project, we need a diverse team to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. And this is, being, this is being promoted by the tech companies and by large corporations. And they are, they are leading the way in a supply chain diversity which is, which is very interesting. I, I spoke with a tech company the other day and it was a telephone conversation so I couldn't see the people. And I said to them, I'm so appreciative of this diversity initiative you have. I've been doing this for 35 years. Where were you 35 <laughs> years ago? And the guy said, well, I was seven so I couldn't have helped you much. Right. So this is a whole new aspect of professional life that everyone is now not just talking about, they're actually doing something about. I'm going to ask you a demographic question because uh, I'm going, and I've been thinking about this kind of, you know, with the growth since the late 1960s, the growth of women in the workforce. The, the last 10 years, I just read that we've had the lowest birth rate in the history of, you know, since maybe once in the 20th century in the 1930s decade. Do you think some of that as relates to, you know, women feeling that they have to be in the workforce and delaying their childbearing, you know, efforts, et cetera? 
And are, how are people managing through that? How, how can they handle that? And are the women, is this movement helping women work through those issues and ha- having children and, and keeping their professional life going? So I didn't have a choice. Right. So it's hard for me to, you know, I became the breadwinner. I didn't have a choice. Right. It's hard for me to opine on how other people get through this. I got through it because I had no choice. I have two very successful, very loving, very wonderful daughters who are near perfect, just as my mother would have wanted, and who we will celebrate Mother's Day in a few days with uh, tears of joy that we all became great moms and great, greatly successful humans. Choices have decisions, and they have consequences. And it's not for me to really say what someone else, how someone else should live their life. We, we all get to decide that. But I can tell you, you can be a great professional and a great mom. You probably can't do that and read a lot of novels and take a lot of vacations and play a lot of golf and do a lot of other things. But if you want to be a great mom and a great professional, you can, you can do that. And my daughters are examples of that. Is it easy? No, it's hard. And it, and ours, as, as our society is asking couples to take on more responsibilities, I have just as many men now who take their children to the doctor in the middle of the day as I, as I do women. So it is changing. It is, it is becoming more fashionable isn't the right word, but more accepted mm-hmm. to to include family into part of the equation of one's per, of one's professional life. You think about your parents; that would that would be a foreign concept to that to them, right? Completely foreign concept. Right. But you know, I was the first woman in either family to go to college. I was the first woman mm-hmm. in either family to get a master's degree. I was the first woman in either family to start a business, and I was the first woman in either family to get a divorce. So I have a lot of firsts. And now, all these years later, I didn't completely answer your question. The advice that I give women is, the singular advice I give women is ask for feedback. Men are still very uncomfortable giving women feedback. Because they're afraid they're either going to cry or yell, and they don't like either outcome. So you have to ask somebody, how could I have done this better? Give them permission to tell you the truth. And women would be very well served. They're not going to get the same feedback as their male counterparts unless they ask for it. And that feedback is so fundamental to success. So that's the lesson you teach is, you know, Give honest feedback. Give honest feedback. And be ready for it if you're on that receiving end, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Correct. And it's hard. It, it, you know, it's difficult. But I remember there were a couple um, of my mentors. One of them was a man named Tony Bazelli, who was the managing partner of Deloitte. And he... he he was new to town and he asked me to have lunch. We knew each other through the board of trade. And he said, 
Linda, really mentor me on this, you know, really help me figure this out. And I thought, can you imagine if women said that, you know, really mentor me on this, help me be the better me, help me have the better me come out, how powerful that would be, because who, who would not want to give somebody help? I mean, you have to be a pretty unnice person to. Unless you're a competitor and you're just one of those right. doggy dog type people. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work real well in, in uh, professional service firms. No. It really requires a lot of collaboration. And I'd have to say that now with the COVID, well, having people work from home, they have gotten better at learning how to communicate with each other. And we've all learned how to deal with the dog that's barking in the background and the sure. doorbell that's ringing because Amazon is delivering our dinner that night or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you have certain values that your company has. So I wonder if you could cite each value and, and talk about some examples from why they, they are important to your company. So dedication is the first one. And dedication is dedication to the mission, whatever the mission is. And I don't know anyone who is successful at anything without dedication. You have to put your heart and soul into it. So for me, I care less about your degrees. I care less about how your resume, I care greatly about your dedication to doing the, doing the right thing and doing the best thing. Creativity is the fuel that allows you to be different. It's such a differentiator. So people say that Rand gives some of the best pitches in town, that we, we do a very good job of interviewing. And I think we do because we think of creative ways. We sit in a conference room and we think of creative ways to build these projects that are not just same old, same old, you know. I used to say to people, Anyone could say that. What can we say that's different? What can we say that will be this aha moment? Give an example of a left field thing that, that you came out of, you know, out of left field idea that you had in a certain job that really wowed the client, just out of curiosity. Oh, there's so many of them. I you Think know. of one that recent one that might be interesting for the listeners to hear about. I think the way we the way we approached Marriott was some of the creative ways we approached how we could get this project done really was a differentiator. It really was a wow moment. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a, ha, these people get it. These people get it. They get what we're after. We recently won a nice, a very nice project with Walker and Dunlop. And it was the same thing. You people get us. We did the research about their firm. We did the research about Willie Walker. We did the research about his philosophy. We did the research about his aspirations as a business owner. Mm -hmm. And we thought of creative ways to help him in that. That's for their new headquarters at Cars Building. Yes. Okay. So, you know, Willie Walker is in Denver. I know. And his people said, wow, these people get us. They, they get what we're trying to accomplish here. So I think that that creativity comes in many forms, but thinking through how you can not just do a job wrote routinely by rote, by yeah. rote how right. you can do a job by 
you know, everyone uses the term think around corners. I can't stand that term. <laughs> I, I really, it's... How about over the horizon? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, that, that's so overused. What What is not overused is using creative juices to to make a better plan. And that's what we try to do. Excellence. We've won awards for our the quality of our work. We started in 1989. We won our first award in 1991, and we've won won hundreds of craftsmanship awards. So that's really excellence. But excellence goes beyond that. It goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding like a preacher, and I don't mean to. I mean this really very sincerely. You're either excellent or you're not. You don't have to be perfect, but good enough is not good enough. And my father used to say that to me in his Good enough is not good enough. And it's not. Like, if you're going to be excellent, you have to be excellent. That doesn't mean being perfect, but it does mean doing the best that you can possibly. One other point that I'll bring up, and I had my early, one of my earlier guests, David Kitchens with Cooper Carey, talked about, and I brought up because I'd read an article about it, and the word is taste. And taste has a very interesting connotation. And we went on for 20 minutes talking about that word. And to me, that's really important. I mean, to me, that's excellence in what you do, is having taste. What's your thought about that that word? You know, I actually never thought about that word. I mean, I know when people are tasteful, and I know when they, when they say things that are not tasteful. It's art. It's not science. <laughs> right. Really. Exactly. Exactly. I see that. It's an interesting thing I'm going to have to I'm going to have to think about. The last two are teamwork and stewardship. And teamwork is really so many people talk about, you know, we're collaborative and we're teams. Don't don't listen to that. Watch what they do. Watch watch if they really have each other's back. Watch if they really support each other in meaningful ways. And we celebrate that. Every month we give awards out for people who did something that showed from the, you know, bottom of their heart that they were a team, that they, that they helped somebody out. And we have people nominated for it. At the end of the year, we give out four awards, Chairman's Rantastic Awards for different things. And we celebrate when our values when people were creative, when they were leaders, when they did were team, you know, did something that really helped the team. And the last one is stewardship. And, you know, stewardship is, is being proud more than anything else. Stewardship is being proud of who you are and what you believe in and how you are going to live your, your professional life. And that means managing all the different aspects of our business in a way that shows good stewardship, shows that we are thoughtful of, about how we manage our subcontractors, our the architects. One of the things that's so different from 35 years ago is 35 years ago, there was a tenant, there was an architect, and there was a contractor. And that troika, that triad, made all the decisions. Now on some of our projects on the on the Washington Post project there were 40 people at the table. Mm. So the table has gotten a lot longer 
and, and our job as good stewards of the process is to make sure to the best of our ability that we're good stewards of the process, which means being good stewards to all, the, all those people sitting at the table. So you're responsible, in essence, from that. Correct. Correct. So the pandemic has perhaps changed the real estate business considerably. How do you see it affecting your business? The office market is looking at challenges both in demand and supply now. How are you pivoting to keep your business thriving? So the pandemic has caused us all to really think first internally how we how we are going to conduct business. And that has lots of HR, that has lots of unresolved HR issues and a a lot of things for all of us leaders to think about. And I can't tell you how many panels I've listened to about people working through the issues of, you know, are you going to make sure everyone's vaccinated before they get in or before they come into the office or whatever externally we're social human beings and people are going to gather. I mean, we've been hunters and gatherers for a very long time for millenniums and that's not going to change. This the size may change, the configuration may change, but a wolf can only can only kill one animal. A wolf pack can do great damage and we will we will need to be in order to be collaborators. So Office buildings aren't going to go away. They may look different, but they're not going to go away because you can't win. You can't be excellent without a whole bunch of other people helping you. Technology is not enough, is what you're saying to some extent. No, because technology doesn't have EQ. Right. So when you're doing Hollywood Squares on Zoom, it's kind of hard to emote too much, is what you're saying to some extent. It is. We've all learned how to do, we've all learned how to give pitches, you know, that way, but it does, it it takes away from the walking into the room and shaking everyone's hand and looking at them. And, you know, you only really see them from the neck up. So you don't really get, get the full picture and you can't see if they're tapping their fingers on the table and you can't see if they're, if they're texting each other, (laughs) you know, like, boy, this this presentation sucks or, you know, you right. can't see any of that. So it does, it does make a difference. COVID has for uh, like every pandemic, I'm sure, like every upheaval in society, it will forever alter our behavior, but we, we are social beings. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that we're going to see some social changes, you know, with regard to how people work, how often they're in the, their office space, when people are there, you know, what it means. So in the long run, it might have an impact on demand for office space, I would guess. So the question is, will people renew and change? My sense is they're going to change. They're either going to reduce or in some cases expand, but more reduction probably at least initially. I'm guessing, I don't know, but it's just I don't think we don't, none of us know. I remember when 9-11 happened, you know, everyone said New York would never be back. And then New York came roaring back. And now people say, well, what's going to happen to cities? You know, the, the bigger question really for me, outside of just commercial real estate is what are cities going to look like? You know, how are cities going to function? And, you know, how are we going to relate to each other when 
in ways that we hadn't thought of before. Because you can't just do it on Zoom. You can't do it on no. platforms. Well, I mean, to me, the group thing is important because, I mean, we're all going to eventually want to get back to sports events, to theater, to all the entertainment. How about fun? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. We're going to all want to get back to fun. Of course. Right. People want to get together. So, so besides the pandemic, we've seen social changes accelerated as a result of several incidents over the past year or so. Since your company is woman-owned, diversity is built into your culture, and we talked about that, I would imagine. Have you adapted it any to the recent focus on these issues? And I'm talking primarily about racial issues. I will I'll frame that up a little bit. So I'm very proud that, that we have always been looking for talent whatever shape or size that talent is in. Now, young women in our industry and people of color have this golden opportunity to really be put in positions that they might not have been put in several years ago. Our responsibility for that is to make sure that they're mentored in ways that five years from now, they're not people are not saying, see, we put these people in positions and they failed. That would be a step backwards. So we are very focused on everyone's advancement, but making sure that when we put people in positions of that are a little bit of a stretch for them, that that we have we have the we've given the thought to how we can help them be successful. And I, I think that's the most, in, in all of my years of being, you know, one of the few women in the room, you, you have to, I, I can't, not a person of color, so I can't speak to that, but I can speak from a gender point of view. There's, there are some do's and don'ts that, you know, you have to learn if you're going to be successful. And as long as we pass on those do's and don'ts, to people we're trying to give opportunity to, they'll be fine. They'll be great. They'll be okay. And this is a golden opportunity for people to take it, for women and people of color to take advantage of, of a system that hasn't worked quite as well for them. Wouldn't you agree, though, that it's one person at a time as opposed to grouping people uh, under a certain classification to some extent? I had the choice when I started RAND of being an 8A firm. And I decided that that wasn't me. I was going to go toe-to-toe. I was going to be gender blind. And I wanted people to be gender blind. Mm -hmm. My competition used to say, oh, Linda, you're so lucky you get all that work as a woman-owned business. And I'm like, who are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) It's, that's, a good, that's a good soundtrack guy, but it just doesn't happen to be the truth. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I do think that it is one person at a time. And as a result of that, I do work very hard and try very hard to create situations and positions for, for women to, to be seen in ways that they wouldn't otherwise be seen. So I started, you didn't ask me this question, but I'll tell you, a number of years ago, I got uh, Corporate Director of the Year. And this is 
from the whole United States Corporate Director of the Year. Wow. And I looked back and, you know, I was like one of the first corporate directors and I looked up, I was, I, I looked it up and there were so few women corporate directors. And I said to my husband, this just isn't right. So now I have funded and founded a class at Harvard Business School to help C-suite women learn Great. how to be directors. And between the bottom up and the top down, and it takes both to make social change, it's working. We had more, partly because of the social unrest, but we had more women named to corporate directorships this year than ever in the history of corporations. There's a lady that I met who was the formerly the CF, CFO of what's now known as Wash Reed, W-R-I-T, Washington State Investment Trust. Her name is Sarah Grudwasig. Yes, I you know, know Sarah. Sarah. Sure. And that's her thing now. That's what she does. She basically promotes. I think she's directors. on the West Coast. Yes. 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 Yeah. yeah. So you know her. I yeah. do know her. Yeah. Because I know that was, well, she focused on trying to promote, you know, women becoming board members. So, so. last year, the last time Harvard did the course, they didn't do it in at, during COVID, there were 175 women from 14 countries. Wow. Wow. That's a lot. That's impressive. Well, but congratulations on that. Obviously, that's, that's a great achievement. So relationships are key to our industry. Absolutely. As you well know. Other than family and colleagues, who has influenced you the most in your career? Other than you mentioned, obviously, former colleagues, but either from the public or private sectors of people that you've done business with or no, or even personally have influenced you? Again, I think it's because I took too many psychology courses. I really do study human behavior and study people. And I've learned what I've, I've learned what works and what doesn't work. And I've kind of thought through that, that there are so many icons in our industry. There's so many people who helped me along the way in, in real estate. And I think that's one thing that makes real estate really very interesting, at least in this community. There are people if you're, who, who are very, most willing to help. Back a hundred years ago, Joe Statenius was, you know, absolutely so helpful to me and there's a reason why there's an award named after him. I know. I got the first one. <laughs> I, I got the first Joe Statenius Award. And, and, and I, was really, I, I was really honored to, to win that award because he taught me so much. And, and there have been, I've watched or become friends with or friendly with so many people who you learn something from, if you if you care to, you can learn something from every encounter you have. And I, I try to do that. That's great. So I sent you a trans, transcript of a speech by Peter Kaufman. I loved it. About multidisciplinary thinking. Curious if you have any similar perspective based on your experience. To understand is to know what to do. Boy, isn't that true. So. Said a little bit differently, Steve Harlan used to say to me, what would you do, what decision would you make, what would you do if you took fear out of the equation? So you're 
afraid, of course, because you don't understand. And I think about that often. If I weren't afraid of some new venture or some new idea, what, what kind of decision would I make? I really loved this mirrored reciprocation. The concept of it, the idea of it is so powerful that, and it's so simple, just as he said, it's, it's very simple concept, but back to Zig Ziglar, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so when, when you walk away from me today, you're going to think about how you feel, how you felt about this experience. And, and that will form your idea of how you think about me by how you think about your experience. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I loved it. I, I wrote down all the words and I thought, gee, as a former teacher, I should grade everyone on trustworthy, principled, courageous, competent, loyal, understanding, forgiving, and unselfish. Multidiscipline. Yes. It was, it was very powerful. It was a, I thank you so much for that. I'm going to post this in the show notes for the listeners to have, but this is a speech by Peter Kaufman to the, he's a businessman in California, and he was speaking to Caltech students at the time for the speech, and it's, it's extraordinary. <laughs> so the last thing I want to say about that is when he said dogged, incremental, constant progress over a long time frame. That describes the construction industry to a T and probably all professional service firms. At one time, we, at one time, you know, a number of years ago, Clark Construction was 100 years old, Hit Contracting was 75, Davis was 50, and Rand was 25. It just so happened that the Class A contractors won showed up every 25 years. I can't think of a better example of dogged, incremental, <laughs> constant progress over a long period of time. That's great. That's great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events of your career? Well, the most surprising event of my career is that I was really, that I use my teaching skills a lot, but that I was a natural business leader and owner more so than anything else, that I stumbled into something that helped, that enhanced my natural talents that I didn't know I had. No guidance counselor at Bloomfield Hills High School would have said, I think you should be an entrepreneur, let alone and run a construction company. Right. So I've been amazed to think that how many other people are out there who have been misguided, who, whose skills are of one set, and nobody's just taught them that they're, how to use those skills in a, in a different way. I was really surprised in the early years how, how mean people could be and how vicious they could be. And... I was surprised when I had cancer, how kind people could be. And I'm surprised now that you think I'm an icon. So <laughs> there, I've had lots of surprises. I, I think that, I think as you go through life, you only go around once. So you have to decide who you want to be. And I decided in my cancer 
that I wanted my, if I was going to die, I wanted my regret list to be very small. And so in my personal life, I have three regrets. My father never saw my success. My mother never understood it. And I was never five foot ten with long, thin thighs. <laughs> and that's it. And in my professional life, I've had some regrets of people who didn't give me a chance or people who called me a lot of unflattering names or people when we were winning uh, said some, you know, unflattering things. But competition is competition. And, you, you know, you, you're either, you either have that, you know, steel backbone and have dogged, incremental, <laughs> constant <laughs> progress or you don't. And it's not, and it's not for everyone. It, entrepreneurship is not for everyone. It takes it takes um, a tremendous amount of of different skills and a, a willingness to really learn every single day. But it also offers you freedom, freedom to make decisions for yourself and not necessarily have to rely on what other people are telling you what to do to some extent. That's true. It does allow you a. a, a certain freedom of thought, Mm -hmm. not necessarily always freedom of action, because I think our clients are my boss, (laughs) right? But it does allow you freedom of thought. Mm -hmm. So you've been very active in the community, including board memberships, real estate organization leadership, volunteer activities, any particular strong passions among those commitments? Every organization that that I led, I led purposely. It was intentional. And I led crew because it was women. I led the Washington chapter of the International Women's Forum again because it was women. I led the Washington Building Congress because I needed subcontractors to think of me as a leader. I led the Greater Washington Board of Trade because I was so incredibly grateful that so many of those people had helped me. And I led the Federal City Council because I cared dearly about our community. And so they were for different reasons, but they were all very intentional. I'm still involved with the Board of Trade and the Women's Forum and all these organizations, Federal City Council. I've recently uh, gone on the board of the Horatio Alger Association, which gives awards to distinguished Americans who have overcome difficulties and have gone on to be successful and then philanthropic. And that money gets used to help educate young people going to college who have come from very disadvantaged backgrounds, either emotionally disadvantaged or financially disadvantaged. So that sort of completes a circle for me of teaching and giving and so forth. And I've been asked to go on the board of a hospital recently that I have an interest in. So every, every, the corporate boards have been fun. Being a trustee of George Washington University was fun. They were all being a chair of the Federal, Federal Reserve uh, Board of Richmond was interesting. They were all learning experiences and they all created new networks for me and new people to, to help me with my thinking or influence me in some way. I mean, I, I sit back and I think, gosh, a number of years ago, I was sitting next to Janet Yellen, and we, she was acting like we were, you know, 
like we were colleagues, in a room that my company had renovated 10 years before. That was like, wait a minute. Now I'm here. I was here as a contractor. Now I'm here as um, a federal a participant. Right, yeah. right. So were you in, was this at the Fed, the Fed, Federal Reserve Board? Yes. Building? Yes. Wow. That's impressive. Have you felt intimidated in any of these circumstances uh, that you mentioned just now? Because these are impressive boards and stuff. I mean, did you ever walk into a room? Oh, boy. Do I really belong here? <laughs> I think I still do that every day. <laughs> that was not then. This is now. I push myself very hard, and I had Econ 101, and I was going to be the chairman of the one of the 12 Federal Reserve Bank boards, and I had Econ 101. And it was, In Ann Arbor. <laughs> yes, and it was daunting. It was daunting, yes. but I figured out a way to, to add value, to leave it better than I found it. And that was to help them find a person to head Federal Reserve IT, who went on to become wildly successful. Oh, that's great. And so one of the things I didn't say, I told you one, but not the second one. So my dad had two sayings, you know, good enough is never good enough and leave things better than you found them. And I think if you do that, and it's what I'm hoping to do at RAND, is to leave things in such a way that they really, they have a very bright future ahead of them. And that's my, that's my new goal, to make RAND multi-generational and to give other people opportunities to be as successful as I've been allowed to be. You know, I didn't ask this question earlier about RAND. Why is the, is the name Low, all lowercase with an asterisk at the end. Explain that why that is the case. Well, some consultant <laughs> told us that Rand, that that is our second logo. Our first logo was quite different. And when we moved into this building, we said, you know, we need we just need a whole new look. And we hired a consultant, and that looked more architectural. And the asterisk was curiosity. Why, why do you have that asterisk? So every answer is different, of course. It's interesting. Um, the only time I've ever seen that with any other company in the region is West Group. West Group used to have an asterisk in between their West and Group. So oh, interesting. I yeah. had forgotten that. Yeah. Huh. It's the only other company I've ever seen that had that. So it's interesting. So, so what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Well, our mutual friend Gary Rappaport has a very specific way of, of answering. I think he said a third, a third, a third. That's correct. And I, I would, I would say the same thing. I, it's very important. My family is very important to me, and I never wanted to sacrifice my stewardship and responsibilities and my love of them for any reason. How many grandchildren do you have? Five grandsons. Oh, that's great. Yes. 10, 9, 7, 6, and 5. That's exciting. Yes, the five guys. So Having two daughters, having the grandsons must be exciting. Well, I actually wanted granddaughters. But well, I, you did. <laughs> well, because my, my mother had two daughters, uh -huh. I had two daughters, and my sister had two daughters. 
So it was just kind of a family tradition. And all of a sudden I had five, but I learned quickly that boys are fun. They, we have, we have a lot of fun. That's great. So I think that, I think that we all, those of us who have been successful, all have a responsibility to give back in whatever ways we're, we're able. And then I have, I take tremendous pride and tremendous satisfaction in in my work at RAND and helping people, helping our clients get what we build their dreams. And I take great pride in that. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? Don't marry Dr. Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) But you couldn't have seen it at the time, could you? No. No, I think I I would have told my 25-year-old self, Never let anyone else define who you are. You know, you get to decide who you define who you are. Don't let other people define who you are or what, how your life should be lived. So, final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Linda? You know, I thought a lot about this, and I thought of some pretty hokey things, and I just thought of some pretty snotty things, and I just thought of some pretty inspirational things. But I came up, I, I, I decided on life, it's, life is short, make it worth living. Well, you've lived your, your life very well, and I appreciate it. And thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm thank sure you. the listeners are going to enjoy this conversation. Thank you. I hope so. So we just listened to our interview with Linda Rabbit of Rand Construction. Very special, very poignant discussion. And as I do each podcast episode, I'm bringing on my sidekick, Colin Madden. Welcome, Colin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, John. Good to be here again. So what did you think? Yeah, I think I've got to say that I think this interview, this podcast was kind of the perfect example of why I personally love the long form uh, podcast. I think it's one of the only mediums out there that you can truly get to know someone, truly understand their life, career, kind of thought processes, challenges they face and the adversities they get through. And I think this one nailed each, each of those boxes. And I was kind of, you know, it was emotional. And at the end I was laughing out loud on, on some of her comments. So I, I thought it was a great one. I, I personally didn't know too much of her story. And that's, I think that's more of an insult to me because I, I hadn't, you know, I should, should have known more about Linda prior to, prior to hearing this, but I, I don't know. I, I think I was kind of blown away by her story at each, each minute that passed on the podcast. I grew to admire her more and more as she spoke. And, you know, I, I think she's done very, very great things in the industry, but she also faced extremely hard challenges. And to me, it was very courageous how she got through a lot of those and, I think everyone in the industry should be listening to this one, but especially, you know, women and those who may be minorities in the workplace. So all around was, was great. And it was a great podcast. And I was, I was certainly blown away by, you know, her life really. So did you have a similar feel to that? Well, it's interesting. You know, I've been in this market since 1985 Mm -hmm. and I had only met her at at uh, DCBIA and other industry functions, just, Mm -hmm. you know, incidentally never had a reason to approach her because I was a capital markets guy uh, raising capital for developers and doing business 
primarily in that realm. And she dealt directly with with developers on building out office space primarily, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly on downtown buildings. So obviously we had the same client base, but really no reason to talk or or negotiate or do anything business together because she was at a totally different part of the cap, you know, of the of the process, of the Mm -hmm. development process. I regret that because I wish I had known her earlier and Mm -hmm. gotten to know her a little better because I think we could have shared ideas and thought processes. So a lesson I took away from this conversation is getting to know people at all stages of the development process in your career. Mm -hmm. If you're a young person listening to this, you should try to network as broadly as possible. Even when you don't think it's quite what you do every day, you learn something, get different perspectives from people on things. Yeah. But I I agree with you. Her, she was very transparent about her, her life. And we had something in common, of course, starting out because we both grew up in Michigan. And Mm -hmm. it was interesting talking about that and shared experiences, her father being in the auto industry and my family had indirect uh, part of it as well. So that was kind of cool. And of course, you grew up in Michigan, you knew certain things are that way. So then she decided to come directly to Washington right after school, which was interesting. And what she went through with her husband and and then, you know, what he did to her and then what she had to come back from. I mean, there was a reason why she won the Horatio Alger Award, mm-hmm. because she's a, a classic case of somebody who's, you know, basically started off pretty well in life with her family growing up, went down to almost to the bottom in her mind and then and then was able to had the courage to come back up. And I think her family background, as she talks about, helped her through Mm -hmm. her difficult times. You know, her mother's social skills and her father's determination and grit. And as I said, this episode is uh, labeled grit (laughs) (laughs) because she's one gritty lady. I'll tell you that. Yeah. And I I kept thinking of the word courage throughout all all the podcasts. As you said, how she faced, you know, the challenges of her, her previous husband, but not just courage in that, but courage in to be able to share it with people. I think it, it is extremely brave to be able to share experiences like that. But I also think it's extremely helpful to, to people who may be in similar situations. So I admire her for, for that courage, but not just from that side, but professionally, I think I admire all, all entrepreneurs just because I've seen how challenges challenging it can be to run your own business from my father. So I admired her courage and being able to found a business and not just as a woman, you know, back in the eighties, but also a woman in construction. And even in 2021, construction's pretty tough. I, I would say, I think when I've dealt with construction workers, it is a, a tough industry. So I, I can't imagine all the challenges she faced trying to get, you know, a name for herself, a reputation for herself back in the day. So yeah, I, I saw courage kind of all around her. I don't know. I, I, again, personally don't know Linda, but she does seem a bit humble. And I, I don't know if she, she'd fully say she's courageous, but I, I think she's her story was one of the most courageous things I've heard, certainly. So did you feel similar? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, she has an, an ability that very few people, well, she said all construction company heads have is the ability to, to rally you know, the, the blue collar group, mm-hmm. the construction folks on site 
and then to negotiate and secure business from the white collar, you know, business people, right? To be able to bridge those two communities in a way. So be the interface basically Mm -hmm. between, you know, the trades people and the people doing deals and structuring them and putting things together, you know, converting one, one set of language to another. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think there's a real art to that. Yeah. And every really good general contractor could do that through their sub, you know, relationships with their subs and then on through. But, you know, her background is interesting. She was a teacher and then she, you know, her father was an engineer and her mother was just more or less a housewife, but a socialite. And then she becomes a, a teacher and because that was what she was supposed to do as a young girl at that age. Mm-hmm. And then goes to her core to become a secretary and learn, you know, learn the business. And she had to learn business from scratch, you know, at yeah. KPMG and five, six years of that. And the story about the partners saying, mm-hmm. what? She's secretary <laughs> becoming head of marketing for KPMG and doesn't even know accounting. It's like, what? <laughs> Yeah, there's Harlan, the grid again. Yeah. Steve Harlan, who was the head of the office there, had a belief in him, her mm-hmm. and encouraged her and gave her the support. So she had key people that came that really helped her mentors in her career, which she pointed out. And another great lesson. Mm-hmm. Find mentors <clears throat> that believe in you and you believe in them. Yeah. It really helps. Yeah. So I I know you brought up Peter Kaufman's speech during the podcast, and you had said that to me previously as well, and I thought it was very enlightening and enjoyable. But for the listeners, I wanted to get your your thoughts on the 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 speech itself, and hopefully this encourages more people to to check it out in the show notes. So, what what is it about the speech that you find interesting, and how did that tie to what what you heard from Linda? Well, I don't have the exact title in front of me, but it was the multi it's multidisciplinary approach to thinking is the to thinking yes yeah. so peter's mentor is a fellow by the name of charlie munger who uh is warren buffett's business partner sidekick at berkshire hathaway charlie was a legal an attorney and then joined warren many years ago to join it charlie has a unique philosophy that he looks at things in a very broad spectrum one of the arguments he talks about is to know if you're an attorney, you should know how to argue both sides of an argument better than anybody else. And so approaching things with a, what he calls a lattice work of mental models. So approaching life with, you know, things that you can learn from other people. Mm-hmm. So that's what Peter Kaufman emphasizes is, you know, there's three buckets of knowledge in the world, which is fascinating the way he approaches it. There's the inorganic, which is the universe itself, which is 13 billion years old. Plus, there's the organic, which is two know, billion, maybe probably two or three billion years old on the on the planet. Mm-hmm. And then there's the human existence, which is 20,000 or I don't know, maybe a million years, but human civilization is probably 20,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Those are the three buckets you use. And then what are the disciplines that you know, human beings have, have, you know, used over the years. And the essence of it is kindness. 
<laughs> he has three or four different things he talks about. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, uh, very simple things. He says that, you know, you, there's all these things you learn, but the best thing is simplicity, right? Simplicity above all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's life isn't that complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is massive. But understanding all the disciplines, you realize that over time as you understand it. And mm-hmm. uh, he said, you know, the, the secret to life is, you know, be kind and go first. It's basically right. his two messages. Yeah. And he, he called it the mirrored, mirrored reciprocity, which mirrored Linda reciprocity. also brought up. And yeah, and I, I thought he, uh, Peter Kaufman in, the, in his speech gives the example. of You always see these people at, at a bar late at night at 2 a.m you know, drowning their sorrows and thinking like, when's the world going to give me something? And he goes like, well, what did you give to the world? So I think, I think that kind of thought trap is, is kind of inherent in a lot of people where the, it's almost like the woe is me trap. And to me, it seems like Linda had a lot of those opportunities to fall into that trap, you know, with the abusive husband and a couple of challenging professional situations and of getting, you know, let go or fired. And also, you know, being diagnosed with cancer, I think, she had a lot of opportunity to kind of sit and say, when's the world going to give me something? But the mirrored reciprocity is, you know, you go first, you make, you make a positive decision first and positivity will come back. So I think she, she kind of truly lived the, the underlying theme of Peter Kaufman's speech. So I thought that was a great tie in that you guys were discussing it. Well, yeah, I brought it to her attention before we actually met. I sent Mm -hmm. it to her in advance because after reading the story about her, I mean, she won the Horatio Alger Award. Mm-hmm. So after reading that story, I thought, wow, you know, this, there's an analogy here. Yeah. So this, this will be linked in the show notes, by the way, for listeners, mm-hmm. this article. One of the better articles I've read. And in fact, I will also link another article, a series of articles I just received from James Clear, who is a author of Atomic Habits and sends out a weekly newsletter, which I encourage all the listeners to subscribe to if they can, because very wise comments that he sends out every week. But yeah. He has a link in there, 10, 10 or 15 Steve speeches, including the famous one by Steve Jobs at Stanford University, graduate, you know, when he was diagnosed with cancer. Several other very interesting speeches. So, Mm-hmm. So, yeah, very powerful right. message. What what was your favorite story or favorite part of the of the podcast? Or yeah, there were so many question? point so many poignant yeah. moments, and I guess I think of the one that choked me up the most: the day that her first day at KPMG, where she took. A cab to get to the, there because she didn't have enough money to didn't have a car and she took a cab from her friend's apartment where she and her two daughters that were two four and two were living at the time because she her house was taken away by her husband who left the country with his secretary and just you know she was really in the bottom of the bottom of the heap at the point mm-hmm. and she didn't have enough money to take a cab home. And it was snowing outside. And her first day on the job, the lady sitting next to her, the secretary, said, you have two degrees, and I'm never going to give you any help. Yeah. And yes. so she, 
she's standing there in the snow waiting for a bus. And she, you know, she went to, you know, to prayer, I believe, is what she went to say. She mm-hmm. says, I am determined to do something, to make something of my life at this moment. I mean, that mm-hmm. was, that's a key, that's key. That yeah. Was big. Yeah, you could go either way. You could give up at that point, I think, or just lean into it and build. So I think we know the, the, uh, the path she took. What was your favorite moment? I thought thought how she, when she sat next to Janet Yellen in the Federal Reserve Building, in the same room that she had built, must have been a very who was very, chairman of the Fed at the time, right? So if, it must have been like an out of body experience at that point. It's it's in such a full circle type of you know how did I get here type of scene. So I thought that was surrounded by PhDs in economics and yeah, you know, the economic geniuses of the country. Mm-hmm. And here she is, a construction <laughs> entrepreneur. Yeah. With uh, an education degree. Mm-hmm. She kind of felt a little bit out of place there, but. Right. Yeah. And I did, I did like how you had asked if she was intimidated by those opportunities. And I think a lot of the time people, when they enter a new opportunity, are maybe, you know, a little under experienced, but I think those are the opportunities you should take because you can just learn how to make it work. And I think her approach of saying, whatever I do, you know, I, I, I think of it from the lens of making it better than when I got there. So maybe she wasn't necessarily the best to discuss, you know, interest rate decreases and stuff like that. But she said, you know, she focused on the IT side of the Federal Reserve and she really transformed it there. So I thought that was a good lesson, you know, that I took that if opportunities come up that you, you might convince yourself you're not qualified for, just just think of it of what you are qualified for to improve and well, do it that way. You know, to me, the Federal Reserve Board should have what I call practical people on the board to understand mm-hmm. what the every man is thinking. And it's interesting, her perspective, as I said earlier, she had the, the approach, you know, what a businessman is thinking right now. Mm-hmm. And she also knows what the construction worker blue collar guy is thinking right because she has them as employees so yeah. she has a unique perspective there and can bring that thought process to the ivory tower mm-hmm. <laughs> you know economic <laughs> economic planning and thinking right right which i th- oftentimes government officials need certainly certainly yeah i think i think a lot of times those those committees get lost in the same thought patterns as each other because they're all the same. And it's no different than, you know, corporate world because that's why I think diversity is so important because when you have the same people in the room, you have so many blind spots. So I think the way things are headed in, in terms of getting more diverse people and diverse thought into decision-making seats, it broadens, broadens business, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why the ESG movement is so important. Mm, to yeah. keep keep that going. And I asked her about women in business and the perspective of that. And I thought that was, you know, it's important. Mm-hmm. She's a pioneer and she's seen the impact now. And she's, I know, pleased with the growth of women and minorities coming in to participate because they add perspective that people need mm-hmm. to understand. So. Yeah, and I, you had, I think, previously shared the Maya Angelou quote about 
at the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or did. They'll remember how you feel. And she, she brought that up. And then while I was, I was searching that quote, I also found the, from Maya Angelou, the, when you learn, teach, when you get, give. And I think, you know, both of those quotes by Maya Angelou is, is sort of how I feel Linda has lived her life where just in the podcast, you could tell she was fully, fully in the situation with you sharing her thoughts and um, not thinking of anything else. And clearly in her career, she's, she's learned a lot and she's taught a lot and she had many examples of how teaching helped her in her career and even coaching and bringing teams together. But also at this stage of life, it says, when you get, you give. And she's received a lot through a lot of her grit and you know courage, but she's given back so much and started all these committees and organizations for women and stuff like that. So I thought it was, it was interesting that both quotes, she very, very much fulfilled the, the overall message of this. Yeah. The, Earlier podcast that I had with Wendy White, she brought Linda's name up, and Linda founded this group called Wind Down, which is a mm-hmm. group of women that, at the time, this was probably 20 years plus ago, maybe even late 80s, early 90s, that, mm-hmm. you know, there just weren't that many women in our industry. And so they all kind of came together and they meet, I think, monthly or quarterly or how often they meet. And it's really important to keep that network going. Mm-hmm. So for them, right. sticking together. So anything else, Colin? Any other no, thoughts? That's, that's about all I had. I, I thought it was great. And just another example that I, I love what you're doing with, you know, all the stories in DC real estate. I think this one was especially good. And this one should certainly be listened by anyone involved in the industry. But again, women and people of minority, I think she's a true testament to what you can accomplish. Okay, Colin, thank you very much. And thank you listeners for joining us today. We will have several really good ones coming up. I'm really excited. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spill the beans right now, but please stay listening and subscribe if you can at coenterprises.com forward slash subscribe to the icons podcast line up this summer. It's going to be a good one. So I hope you stay and listen. Thank you again, and let's talk again in two weeks.